Today we are here with award-winning and best-selling writer of eight books, Manreet Sodhi Someshwar. She has most recently been working on the Partition Trilogy, of which two books have come out. Um, you know, I find Manreet to be an absolutely spellbinding writer, and I've said this before that the way in which you weave narratives, you create personalities, you build dialogues, and even enliven geographies, um, locations play a very important role in your book. But to sort of uh, you know extend the last question, uh, there is of course fiction, but fiction based on the past, and there are different approaches to how writers deal with this um, arena. There are people who might completely rely on imagination when it is about weaving a narrative, even if it is historically based. But there is also an approach which you use, uh, critical fabulation. So could you shed some light on that? Yeah, wonderful. So when I started working on uh, what is now the Partition Trilogy, and as uh, Eric said, books one and two have released, which is uh, Lahore and Hyderabad, and Inshallah Kashmir comes out this year. Uh, what my plan with that was to, uh, one, put into the narrative stories that I had grown up with, mm -hmm. stories which I did not find in my history textbooks. And also at the same time, what I wanted to do was put in the same narrative our political leaders, especially the ones who were in Delhi at the time of 1947 and the run up to it, and see how the decisions made, made in Delhi are impacting those for whom the decisions are being made. For instance, Lahore is set in the nine months leading up to independence and partition. So it's the decisions being taken in Delhi by uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, who is the interim uh, prime minister, uh, Vallabhai Patel, who is the deputy prime minister and the home minister, and Dickie Mountbatten, or Lord Mountbatten, who is the last viceroy in India. So it is these men who are tussling with and negotiating uh, to figure out what the final shape of the subcontinent will be once the British depart. And I'm starting with Lahore because I grew up in Punjab personally myself and I think the partitions acts really uh, fell on uh, Punjab as a state. Mm -hmm. And therefore that's the, so as the historians would say, it is putting the subaltern and the elite on the same stage and that's what I'm trying to do. So when I, you know, when you embark on a project like that, uh, especially in today's day and age where history is being weaponized, uh, you know, I have to be careful that uh, all the resources, all the sources that I cite for both are things that can be verified. Mm -hmm. And when I was, I have been researching this trilogy for 20 years, so when I uh, was still trying to figure out how best to sort of do this match of uh, imaginative creative fiction with what is really narrative non-fiction but creatively told. I was in New York City and I came across this professor uh, called Sadia Hartman mm -hmm. who was teaching at that time in the college where I was taking a course in trauma literature to sort of deepen my own understanding of trauma. And Sadia Hartman teaches a, uh, you know, has in fact come up with this concept called uh, creative fabulation, mm -hmm. critical fabulation. What she really does is that on a scaffolding of hard research, you do a padding of um, creative fiction. Or, so the skeleton is entirely borne by hard facts, by sources that can be referenced and cited. But on top of it, you add a padding of imagination, of trying to bring those characters alive. And I think that was really helpful for me because that's what I have attempted with the three books in the Partition mm -hmm. Trilogy. So you mentioned uh, about the past now recently uh, being weaponized or the sort of historical writing being weaponized. 
I think uh, one another thing is that in the context of partition especially, um, even though it's a major turning point in history, I think, and you've talked about this before, that you keep reminding people that there was also a partition. So I want, to, I want you to talk a bit about the context in which you're writing. When you're seeing the past being weaponized, when you're seeing um, the way in which we remember this major turning point um, in our past is sometimes being forgotten. How is it to be writing about the partition in these times? Thank you, Eric. That's a wonderful question. I think when we look at the 75th year of India's independence, which is what we are marking or celebrating now, we have given short shrift to the fact that it is also the 75th year of India's partition. In fact, partition was the cost for independence. There wouldn't be one without the other. They go together. They're concomitant. And I guess because I'm a Punjabi, because I come from a particular border town uh, and where I was, in fact, yesterday I traveled from my hometown of Firozpur to Jaipur and to took a whole day, I tell people I could fly into Lahore and then into Amritsar, it would be easier, <laughs> you know. So we have to recognize that uh, while we celebrate India's independence, and rightly so, we also have to find a way of dealing with partition and its trauma, which lingers to this day. And I have always been aware of it, and that's why I said my writing career started with that thought. And to provide further context, I live in New York City, which is sort of the home, uh, the capital of the Jewish diaspora, right? People who fled uh, the Nazi Holocaust. And for a lot of these people, uh, wrestling with that event, which has sort of the same uh, age, uh, as India's partition is an ongoing affair. We have the third generation which is still writing wonderful fiction, non-fiction, memoir, uh, and wrestling with the demons of Holocaust. And every year, you know, one or two books are winning awards, which is necessary because awards bring attention to mm -hmm. books. Now, when I contrast it with what we have done with partition, for instance, I think we have mostly uh, paid lip service, you know, we, we, there will be a WhatsApp which will come from somebody in Lahore and people will tut tut and shed a few tears. But the fact is that partition doesn't want us to be sentimental. It wants us to interrogate the past. Mm -hmm. It wants us to ask why it happened. And since I brought the parallel of the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust and partition, you know, very often academics and people who are studying these tend to compare the two. Yeah. But I think the comparison gives uh, is short shift to partition for the simple reason, and here I'll cite when I had started my uh, oral narrative uh, uh, and you know collecting the oral narratives of people who were elderly, a lot of whom have passed away, but who actually witnessed partition, certainly from my hometown, there was initially a lot of resistance. People didn't want to talk about it, but at some point in time, there was uh, you know people started to speak. Uh, I was gathering some. Uh, uh, some uh, narratives and then there was an elderly sick gentleman who told me something and I thought the penny dropped for me and he said in uh, Punjabi which I will uh, then exp you know sort of translate into English he said uh, nobody's hands are clean and uh, to elaborate on this in the Jewish Holocaust there are very clear villains and heroes or survivors the Nazis are the villains but in the case of India's partition, certainly in Punjab, in Punjab there was no ghetto, no Muslim ghetto, or this is a Hindu colony, or this is where the Sikhs live. They, everybody lived cheek by jowl. 
So when partition happened, brother literally turned against brother. And violence was committed by Sikh households, by Hindu households, by Muslim households. And that is why the guilt is so strong. How, do, how does, for instance, my grandfather talk about it or my grand uncle talk about it? Because violence was both committed within the homes. You know, uh, there are numerous accounts of uh, men of the house fearing that the women will be violated lining up the women and I'm saying women loosely as a gender term mm. this could be somebody from the age of 80 all the way to an eight-month-old baby and shooting them mm. so there's violence within the house and then there's violence which is being committed on women of other houses and I think that's why partition particularly is so traumatic and so difficult to wrestle with because we have to look in the mirror and ask ourselves this question Absolutely. And I think it's so important that you talk about interrogating and asking the past questions because a lot of times in our conversations on history, be it any historical event, I think sometimes we just want to remember the past and maybe create a distance. It's happened. Now what? But certain events just do not leave you internally. They are asking you to remember, but not only to remember, but to ask. And I think that's very important that it's not only about thinking about it, but thinking why you're thinking about it, why is it still relevant? And I guess that is why conversations, books, or a theme, no matter how repetitive it might get, is extremely significant. So thank you for shedding light on that. Um, now, of course, you've talked about your approach. And uh, I've said this before that as a student of history, my first instinct, be it any book, is to turn to the last few pages and is to look at the bibliography, the works cited section. Now, you've done um, rigorous research for your work um, on the partition series. I want you to talk a bit about that. How was it to go through the archives, the documents that you referred to, and the sort of primary and secondary documents uh, that you use as your sources? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Um, so, as far as I can remember, as I said, my journey really as a writer began with trying to understand my hometown, trying to understand the narratives that were there which I did not find in my history textbooks, as I said, you know, uh, unfortunately, the way history is taught in India, certainly it was when I was growing up, it was dates, this happened, and partition is never really dealt with. Mm -hmm. And I was very aware, even as a small child, that I would, uh, you know, you're sort of playing a game of hide and seek, and you stumble into a room, which is full of women, and the conversation immediately comes to a stop. You know, it just peters off. And as a child, you don't pay heed to it. But once I had moved out of my hometown and I started connecting the dots, the women were talking about the violence that had been committed, that nobody was talking about. Um, in my own neighborhood, in our colony, the house behind ours, there was a woman who was called the mad woman, you know, the Pagaladita. And I remember her as a child. We were told, you do not approach her, you stay away from her. She was not violent, from what I remember. She just used to sit in the courtyard, in the sun, her hair all askew, and it had been cut very short because I guess she used to tear her hair out. She would just be mumbling. She would be speaking all the time. At times, there would be volleys of uh, words coming out. At times, she would be very quiet, and she would be sobbing. You know, sort of this was classified as a mad woman. And again, once I started interrogating the past, what had I seen, I realized she was one of those victims or survivors. You know, clearly her family thought she was a victim and she had been abducted and then was 
saved, rescued and brought back, but she wasn't rehabilitated. She was never accepted as part of society. In fact, her own family kept her because they were shamed into it by you know, the women's organizations which were leading the effort to rescue uh, these women. And, and, I, and I think that all of that is something I grew up with. But it's only when I read Kushwan Singh's uh, you know, Train to Pakistan, which I came to very late in life. I was in my early 20s. And then it struck me, gosh, this is what I have seen. This is history. This is what really happened. And I feel that it's a false narrative when we privilege um, nonfiction and say, oh, this tells the truth. Yeah. Truth is not uh, the, the safekeeping of any one kind of narrative. Truth is derived from a lot of sources. It requires a deep engagement with the past, with what has happened, with what really uh, you know, was undergone. For instance, when you know, um, partition happened and so many women had been violated, when they crossed the border, and uh, there is this wonderful text, because it is really a collection of uh, uh, people's testimonies, uh, by, it's called Stern Reckoning by G.D. Khosla, uh, you know, who was a high court judge. And women say that I was badly used. I'm translating this in English. Uh, but the people who are recording it are male, they are clerks, and they are recording it as, oh, so this woman, uh, you know, had injury, she suffered. But what the woman is really saying is mm -hmm. that she was sexually violated, she was raped. But we don't have a record of that. So there are so many missteps happening, you know. There is this woman who is telling what happened to her, but there is on the other side, she has been violated by a male, but there is this male who won't even record that. So who is listening to her stories? Who is talking about where is the truth getting lost in this? Therefore, when I, uh, you know, so as I said, it has been a 20-year engagement. My first novel is The Long Walk Home, uh, which again looks at the turbulent 20th century history of Punjab through the life of a family. Uh, later, I wrote The Radiance of a Thousand Sons, which is really my attempt to look at 47 and see how it repeated, copy-paste in 84. And that narrative is entirely through the voices of women, because what I'm trying to do is rescue women from history, which in India certainly is his story, rescue mm. women from those interstices of history and let them speak, give them agency and put them front and center. And to do that, there are two kinds of sort of research I have done. One is really, uh, as I said, oral narratives, because we do not have enough of those available. And unfortunately, that generation is mostly gone away or are really at a stage where their memories are flawed. They have, the most vivid accounts are remembered, but every remembering also changes the memory, right? Mm -hmm. so, which is why I enrolled in school to study trauma, to understand how trauma is, uh, is processed by the body, how trauma is remembered, and how it is sort of relayed to others. Mm -hmm. So one is that. So a lot of the female characters, even the male characters in my novels, which are fictional, are really composites. These are women who either I met or women whose stories I learned. And to make it an even more sort of powerful narrative, they're composite characters. But they're living. They were alive. They have lived through mm -hmm. these times. And the other is really going, uh, uh, trawling through the labyrinth of libraries, looking for material. Uh, you know, my research, I was at Hong Kong at that time. My research has 
always taken me to the Hong Kong Public Library and then the New York Public Library, which is a wonderful, wonderful resource. And um, I am a library fellow, which means I get to spend time, request for certain reference material. And as you said, the bibliography at the end of my books is a select bibliography because it is impossible for me mm -hmm. to list out all the uh, material that I have sort of had to time to troll through. Let me just leave with one thought. Uh, you know, my writing career and my career journey as a mother sort of began at the same time. And um, my daughter, when she was nine years old, and I was thick into researching Vallabhai Patel and Jawaharlal Nehru because I write them as my protagonists, which means when I write about Jawaharlal Nehru, Vallabhai Patel, and Dickie Mountbatten in the Partition Trilogy, they are not the hallowed leaders. Mm -hmm. I write as Jawahar, I write as Vallabh, I write as Dickie. And therefore, I have to know them intimately. I have to know when he got up in the morning, what did Jawahar do first thing in the morning? He did yoga, he did a headstand. Mm -hmm. um, what what did, did he smoke? Did he drink? Mm -hmm. uh, Vallabhai, what did he like to eat? Uh, what was his relationship with his daughter Mani Ben, who has always been sort of this name that we see in the backdrop, but who's never talked about? Vallabhai loved tea and Mani Ben had to really rush on his tea because his liver was inflamed and it used to uh, you know, cause him pain. So I had to be really intimate with these people. Mm -hmm. And as I said, it's not easy to get this information. So you know, I would spend time whenever I collect, these were like little gems I was collecting and sort of collating in my book. And I heard my daughter once telling her uh, class, uh, her playmate, oh, my mother spends a lot of time with dead men. They are her best friends. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that has really been my life. So, yeah. so I feel to write historical fiction, certainly the kind of fiction that uh, Sadia Hartman talks about, uh, I have lived in those times and I feel I want my writer, uh, readers when they read the narratives to go and also feel that they are living in those times. I literally want to catch them by the neck and say come run with me because this is a time of extreme frenzy and we are galloping along with these people so see how it's unfolding. Just to highlight something that you said that it is the way in which the past is taught a lot of times it's about truth finding but one has to really understand that with its many layers and what you bring out through your stories where you're so intimate with these characters and history is that it's never about actually finding the truth but finding that everybody has a story everybody has a version and the fact that these are not numbers these are people these are not archives but stories is what's very important and you do that constantly through your historical fiction uh, which brings me to uh, you know, considering the fact that you've been doing rigorous research in this field uh, and a lot of times with scholars, writers, one thing does lead to another. Um, so is there any other arena of the past that has piqued your curiosity and that you want to personalize through fictional writing? I have so many ideas, Eric. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. Um, I think I'm hoping that with the Partition Trilogy, I am sort of I can't say I'm done with partition. I don't think anybody can ever be done with partition. But I feel I, you know, uh, as I said, I was in a hometown Ferozpur uh, yesterday, and I spent three days with my mother. And uh, the Satluj River sort of mm. is the is really the boundary line between India and Pakistan. It's a river. Uh, Punjab is a riverine state. And uh, what I want to do once Kashmir is out, I want to take all the three books, and I want to go to the border, uh, which we do on every visit. Um, and I want to tell sort of my land, my town, my soil that I think uh, 
you know, I'll say this in Punjabi, ki mitti da kar zada ho gaya. That I have paid my dues to the land and you have to let me go, you know, you have to free me. Because there is so much, whilst researching, uh, you know, partition, there's so many other narratives that have come through which I want to talk about and I really don't know whether I want to do them strictly as historical fiction mm -hmm. because uh, in today's day and time his writing historical fiction with the kind of scrutiny uh, that is required with the, with the kind of scrutiny that is put on the writers it is a heavy burden I want to free myself so I I feel I want to try other ways of writing maybe fantasy because fantasy speaks as well it mm -hmm. speaks the truth um, you know there are a lot of narratives, certainly from Punjab, uh, you know, which are about, uh, you know, the lead up to 47. Mm -hmm. You know, we know about 1947 in very headline terms, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but I do feel that narratives which deal with, for instance, even Bhagat Singh's life or Uddham Singh or the Gadar movement or in the fact that they were Punjabis already testing the white man's claim in Canada, in California. We, haven't, we don't have narratives yeah. around that. And going back even further, I'm very interested in, uh, you know, uh, the period around 1857, sort of uh, 18th century, 1890, that period. I'm even interested in the Vijayanagar Empire, which I believe maybe Rushdie has beaten me to it <laughs> because his new novel deals with that. But, you know, there are so many ways of telling the narratives. But, yes, Indian history has me hooked. Oh, fascinating. And just before we close this conversation, you mentioned fantasy. But what about non-fiction? <laughs> you know, I, I love non-fiction and I think uh, well-written non-fiction is, uh, is hugely entertaining. I mean, the, one of the founders of this festival, William Dalrymple, does an exceedingly good job of that. I'm a huge fan. I do not know if I really want to get into that field, primarily because I feel that Fiction allows me to bring those characters to life in a way that uh, even the best of non-fiction puts certain constraints. I think we have, uh, even when you look at the book market, it's skewed towards non-fiction. I think we need more fiction which explores the possibilities of love in strife, which explores the possibilities of grayness, the ideas that the truth is not one, each of us is seeking our own truth and we can sort of parlay with that truth, you know. It doesn't have to be us against them. Uh, we are all of us in this together, you know. Um, I just want to sort of uh, leave with one thought, which is there is, um, because I grew up in the border town, as I said, you know, my, my father is of the generation where he wrote in Urdu and English. He spoke Punjabi, of course, but it was not taught at schools. So for us, listening to ghazals um, and shero shairi was a given. It, it was part of the uh, sort of the cultural milieu of not just a house, a hometown, and Punjab itself. So um, you know, there is this wonderful uh, ghazal which Jagjit Singh uh, sang and. Uh, 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 which became very popular in the 80s and 90s, which goes like Sadma to hai mujhe bhi ke tujse juda hu main lekin ye poochta hu ki ab tera kya hu main So for those who probably do not uh, grasp uh, Hindustani entirely, the poet is saying that I am heartbroken that uh, we have sort of separated but now that we have separated, I want to know what really exists amongst us or between us. And then in the very next share, the poet uh, answers his own question. He says, 
क्या जाने किस अदा से लिया तूने मेरा नाम क्या जाने किस अदा से लिया तूने मेरा नाम दुनिया समझ रही है कि सब कुछ तेरा हूँ मैं वट ही सेज बट यू स्टिल रिमेंबर मी इन अ सर्टन फैशन दैट इट मेक्स द वर्ल्ड फील एज इफ यू एंड आई आर दी ओनली वंस इन दिस स्टोरी and i want to leave this thought because certainly the punjab that i come from the west punjab and the east punjab that is the relationship that is shared and i think that is certainly the relationship that exists to this day between india and pakistan just because we drew a line on the soil the 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 millennia old or maybe two millennia old soil uh, the cultural soil doesn't change so that still binds us you know fascinating and as a student of history thank you manri because what you do is you bring the name to the numbers you bring a story to the archives and i think those are the tales that hit you when you begin to understand that behind these documents <coughs> and these range of uh, stories that you might just hear about ye hua tha wo hua tha there are these people who process the way we do who have gone through this very traumatic phase that still continues to affect us so thank you for bringing the story to life Thank you so much and thank you to everybody for joining and thank you to everybody for watching this episode.